this is a conversation that we can have later, but the digital age and with as with as easy access to high we'll just call it higher technology for more people. Right? We've been um conditioned to expect better. Right? It's not like how it was yeah, when yeah. when when eight tracks are out and you were just like happy to have a shitty recording of your favorite artist because it was better than no recording, right? Nowadays anybody can can be a, a SoundCloud musician or you know pay ten thousand dollars to somebody to hire someone to professionally set up your studio and you have no idea how it works but you just know you press this button when you're ready to sound good. Yeah, I got really into Korean house tours. And there was, they're the best videos on YouTube and they were always really, really good and really, really polished. And it was like a 13 year old doing it. And I was like, there's no way. And then you go to their YouTube channel and this is like their only video. So you're like, they must have got their parents to pay for someone to like edit this video and like put music in and everything. And yeah, they're like 15 just talking well, about their room and I'm like they paid someone to do this. There's no way that this 15 year old did this high quality of video on their own. And it's their only video on YouTube. Well, and that that's interesting though, because we have, um, one of the classes that we offer, um, meaning half of it's your graduation requirements. So it's not really a choice. Um, but it's the entrepreneurship and design thinking. So for, for ninth grade, what that is, it's a lot of um, business models, right? Prototyping designs. How do you market it? How do you phrase things to capture a target market? What is your target audience? Things like that. Um, but a, a lot of what they're asked to do is to demonstrate those 21st century multimedia skills. Right. So, yeah. you know, so it's it's not like we don't have classes and it's not like we don't have a generation that's primed and ready for that to be their um, primary form of communication with the outside world. And by outside world, like here, I would mean like not family, friends or immediate circle. Right. Um, when I was growing up, how you contacted the outside world was um, newspapers and daytime television. Right. You watch the news at night. That's how you had your contact. Or you went someplace um, and you, you physically spoke to somebody. Now, a lot, all of that yeah. started, started changing when I was in high school. Um, and, you know, I think that's just the popular media. But that's something to be said, too. A, how you stumbled across Korean home tour videos as a, a subgenre <laughs> in YouTube. They're so good. Um, but also, too, like, if, if those are authentic and it's not, like they're the one rich kid on the block that has the time and resources to do that, right? Then what does that say about the differences in the educational systems between the West and the East, to, to put it broadly, you know? It is um, very different. Like when, like the Korean style of vlog is you don't say anything and it's all in captions and like if you're doing something that audio would be in there but they never talk to the camera they barely show their face and then like the same video by like a white person in america the whole it's just their face and they're yeah. like doing this and they're like showing their room 
while talking yeah. nonstop. S- s- selfie mode, right? In in Oh yeah. Okay, well let me let me ask you this. If if we are gonna use this as a pilot or or a trailer or something, I guess we need to get into the weeds on this. Um why do you think there's that fundamental primary difference between having yourself in the shot for the West and having yourself out of the shot? Like almost like a, like a Foucault style removal of the author. I guess, I don't know. It depends on where it started. Cause I think I've never seen a Korean person like talk to their phone. So they're probably like, the ones that I'm watching are probably doing what they've seen before. And like, this is how you make a YouTube video about your house is you don't put your face in it. You don't talk. You take like these artsy shots of corners and, uh, and the light hitting the plant and you vacuuming and that's it. And if you're American, you probably watch other Americans who do like the like 2014 speaking to a camera style vlog which yeah I don't know where it would have started though besides if you're like value your anonymity or not well in in because the the reason I asked that is because it makes me think and this is just initial knee-jerk reaction right so I don't I don't know what I don't know what credibility it has, but um, we do on the whole seem to see a, I want to say rise, but if we're being brutally honest, the peak and or fall of a very narcissistic culture in the West, right? They're, they're in, and I think a lot of that is exacerbated by social media, right? Because the whole point of social media is to put you out there to be judged, hopefully favorably, right? As opposed to being unfavorably, that would be cyberbullying. Um, but, but you know, that's the whole point. Here's me on Facebook. Here's my family. Here's what I've done that I'm proud of. Here's my house. So naturally, like our concept is going to be us included in that frame, so to speak. Um, yeah, I guess if you're American and you're trying to make money on YouTube, you... You would want it to be about you versus like the video is a vessel for showing yourself, whereas the Korean version, the video is a product to be proud of in a like alone. If you remove yourself, you're still proud of this shot, of this music, of this editing. Um so yeah, I guess the Koreans, it's about the video, it's about how it looks. And if you're American, it's about you. And if you were removed from that, <laughs> there would be nothing. Well, and, and then that gets me thinking about, and not to get too postmodern too quickly here, but does the inherent intention or value of a piece of artwork, be it cinematography or a written form or um, digital painting, whatever, um, We'll just say created content. Does the inherent value or intention of created content change if we make the 
desires, biases, and intentions of the author or creator of that content more or less visible. Does that make sense? Yeah, like separate that, like if you can separate the art from the artist. Yeah, well, I mean, or in, if you in, know, like this shot was intended, was based off of their childhood experience well, versus in, not having that knowledge, like Michel Foucault, 1960s postmodernist philosopher. Um, and I'm not a huge fan of the postmodernist, but like much of what we deal with in the culture wars today, it, it has its kernels of truth. Um, he has this piece called The Death of the Author. And he discusses how um, because any content that is created, he says specifically writing, but any content that's created can get reinterpreted in so many different ways by so many different people. And those reinterpretations can get reinterpreted as people secondhand and thirdhand that information down. Um, where then does the original intention of the author or content creator wind up? And Foucault would claim that it, it winds up nowhere because that constant eternal subjectivity of being constantly reinterpret, reinterpreted dissolves or at the very least makes moot the original intentions. Because regardless, and this is something that, that we kind of get trained on as historians, at least to, to recognize cognitively, is that... Um, Everyone approaches the creation of something with a specific intention in mind. It might be general, right? I want to make a podcast, and then we see where it goes, but there's still that, that intentionality there. So even if I'm trying to write a non-biased piece of, you know, psychological research on saturated fats versus non-saturated fats and their effect on myelinization in the brain or something, you know, I'm just making stuff up. Um, you know, I'm already composing that hypothesis with an intuitive idea of where I think it's going to go, which is why it interests me in the first place. I, I do agree with that, that like when you put out a piece of content, it is no longer yours and it is no longer like your thoughts that you've put down. It is like, well, you're the only one looking at it and writing it. And then you put it out there and then it belongs to whoever reads it next. And the main reason I like that is because it helps me. Like if I really like this music artist who's since been canceled 50 times, like, well, that's not, this is my song now. Yeah. And uh, like, sorry, this is my song. I have my specific memories with it. I like the song. That person could be a total piece of garbage, uh, but this is now Christy's song. Sorry. So I've kind of like had to default to that because otherwise I would never enjoy anything. Because um, there's always like, you know, like, oh, is this going to be a bad piece of media? Because the people who made it like have since been radicalized in some way or another. And, or, I mean, it, it so might not me, even... it's easier to just be like, who cares? Oh, and I don't want our first episode to be nothing but postmodernism because I, I have a special dark spot in my heart for choking the postmodernists because I think they gave us a lot of ammunition for people that 
misinterpreted or took tools and turned it into ideology. That is a lot of the problems that we're dealing with today. But going back to your statement about two things. First of all, the It's Christie song now, right? I think that's remarkable that we, we as a society have lost that idea to be able to discriminate between the person and the idea, right? They, they're not mutually exclusive, but they're not, um, there's no equivocation there either. If, if, if you're picking up my drift. Um, so, you know, someone could be absolutely terrible, but hidden in one of their books is a gem for how to be a good person. Vice versa. Right. And, and we get clouded with that. Second point that, that you brought up that I want to touch on really quick is this idea of um, hyper-reality. Jean Baudrillard, another French postmodernist, had this idea where, and I think that's what we deal with a lot today. It doesn't even necessarily have to be that that particular artist or content creator or podcaster or whatever is radicalized. There just has to be a narrative strung together through enough people to convince enough people otherwise, right? So one of, one of Baudrillard's big points was that he claimed the first Gulf War never happened. Not that there wasn't a military engagement and there were localized experiences of people in a combat zone, but that was one of the first instances in modern warfare where everything was so tightly controlled information coming back that the story that 98% of the world was told about the Gulf War is so detached from anything that happened that, that you're talking about two different things. Now, I've heard... Um, I follow a guy, his name's Dr. James Lindsay. Um, he's really up-to-date on a lot of the more radical left and Marxist-leaning ideologies that are popping up, especially through the postmodernism. Well, he communicates with a guy, and I, I watched a podcast with him and um, a Canadian counterpart of his co-conspirator, however it is you want to phrase it, um, goes by the handle Vocal Distance. And he explained, I'm, I'm going to repeat all of this because it was wicked good, and I think it's the best way I've heard it explained, that... Baudrillard's idea of hyper-reality. So say, say you and I are ancient Romans walking down the street. We see strawberries growing off in a field next door. That we could consider those authentic strawberries, right? Not interfered with by man, not genetically engineered. They are in the, their natural environment, getting their natural water sources and their natural nutrients growing to their natural height. We pick them, we eat them, they taste good. That's what authentic strawberry tastes like, right? Fast forward to today. Say hypothetically that I have a child. I've never let that child have real strawberries. However, we go to 7-Eleven one day and they're like, oh, cool. Here's a strawberry candy, right? Like the fruit strip that's made out of um, pureed and processed strawberry, right? Someone could go, hey, so that pureed and processed strawberry, let's extrapolate the chemical out of that and we'll chemically synthesize the strawberry flavor based off of that pureed strawberry that's based off of the natural, authentic strawberry and we'll make a strawberry hard candy out of it. 
And then, a, you know, Jolly Rancher goes, oh, hey, let's take that strawberry hard candy flavor and let's make it into a soda. And then 7-Eleven goes full circle and comes back and says, oh, well, let's take that soda flavored hard candy strawberry flavored synthesized from the pureed strawberry derived from the authentic strawberry flavoring and let's make a Slurpee out of it. I give my kid that strawberry Slurpee. That's their first instance of experiencing strawberry. We leave, I give him an authentic strawberry and, and for his framework, his conceptual reality, that authentic strawberry is not real. It doesn't taste right. It doesn't taste real strawberry to him because the only thing he's had is the 14 times removed synthetic recreation of it, right? That's what social media does. It gives us this, this, if we want to get platonic and think of like Plato's theory of forms versus the concrete world, right? The theory of forms, that's where social media exists. That's where mainstream media exists. That's where legacy media, any of the narratives that we deal with, they've been extrapolated out and it's abstracted to the point where for most people, they don't coherently match the everyday realities that we live in. That's why you get those, those jealous biases. You see someone with their perfect life and their perfect wife or husband and their perfect car, blah, blah, blah. Cause that's all you see on social media. Cause it's designed for them to curate that perfected image of themselves into the world to, to like user created hyper reality, so to speak. Yeah. And to me, that ties in with like the term cognitive dissonance, like what you're experiencing doesn't match what you've put on social media. And like, I know that other people's social media is not what they're experiencing either. And even if they tell me like, this is a filtered photo. I only post the good things because people do that and like try and be transparent. But even that is uh, a step removed as well. And yeah. it just snowballs to like, where are we living our lives? Mm -hmm. Well, and, and that's mean, why on Zoom, right? That's and that that's what I try and get my students at school to understand, like. We, despite all of our growth and our successes, we are still asking the same fundamental questions that we have been for the past 10,000 years. Why are we here? What's the purpose of life? What does it mean to have a human experience? Is your experience compatible with my experience? Is there an objective reality? If there is, how can we measure it? Right. If there's not, what does that mean for what we should do with our lives? Right. All of these questions kind of stack up. They're what um, uh, Mortimer Adler called great ideas. Right. So like, what does honor mean? Well, that's something that we as humanity have been asking since we've been self-aware enough to ask that question. And we still haven't found a, uh, we still haven't found a coherent and cohesive enough way to answer it for it to just be like, boom, that's done. Thanks, science table that one and move on to the next one. Yeah. It also makes you ask like who's in charge of like, like we're here because there was an agricultural revolution <laughs> in Europe at some point and uh, we were able to form towns and feed a lot more people and our population exploded. And 
when it was easier to grow food, then we needed money instead. So we made money. And now, and now, you know, cut. And now we're here. We have enough food. We have enough shelter. We have enough money. It's not distributed correctly, but it's all there. Um, And like, it feels like no one's in charge. Like everyone acts like they can't do anything um, to improve anyone else's situation. Um, Which, and maybe that's just an American thing. Like they have to do it themselves. I did it myself. Um, well, and a couple and, things, uh, couple things to be said on that. Firstly, I think you touch on something really important because in just about every culture and just about every time, this is the only time that we've had more than enough. And I'm speaking generally, but you can apply that specifically, whether it be money, food, fuel and energy sources, meaning it doesn't particularly matter. This is like one of the first times in human existence that the majority of the population on the planet is not without in some capacity. Um, the second thing that you bring Sweet. up... It, it, it is, but that, that leads to its, all, its own host of problems because while we have have these evolutionarily designed patterns of behaviors to keep us busy so that way we don't starve to death, now we don't have to, what do we do? And I think that's where a lot of our social cognitive dissonance is coming from. Um, the second thing you brought up that it might be worth mentioning and then tabling for a future discussion later because it's its own, we could, we could write our own treatise about it. Um, you said the, the money distribution wasn't distributed correctly or, or something along those lines, which me being the historian and knowing enough about philosophy and such that I do, my first question is, how do you mean correctly? Or, or, or secondarily, correctly according to whom? Yeah, just today I saw like the four bank CEOs, like all got a 30% raise uh, in 2022. Um, So all of their salaries went up by about $8 million. And Mm, chump change. (laughs) Right. So they went from 25 million to 32 million, I think the highest one now. Um, Meanwhile, their tellers get paid like $18 an hour if they're lucky. And like if, you know, it's a single parent, three kids, like they could be on food stamps, they could be. Uh, so just in that sense that like the amount of work that you do does not equal like, you know, we like to think that hard work equals what you earn. Um, and that's how I would prefer it. Like if you put in 40 hours a week and you work very hard, you make a lot of money. Um that's not always the case um so i think if i don't know what i think well and and that's i would if i made 30 million dollars a year i would be very happy about it yeah well and and i think that that's important a to recognize that like it's okay to have limits Right. Even though we're recording this and we're trying to have these conversations and and I'm hoping that we can take them up to a at least entry collegiate level 
depth. Um, right? We're, we're just people. And to be able to, to be transparent and clear about that is important because I think that'll help us garnish the audience that we want to garnish. Those that are transparent and open and humble and willing to listen and say that I don't know or I wasn't sure what I was thinking or I'm not sure where I was going with that, right? Um, yeah. Also, too, you're... Well, you're, I don't think that the J.P. Morgan guy should make $32 million a year for essentially sitting at a computer. No, and, and there, that is a good point. I don't have an answer to that, but I do know that corporatism is the... If capitalism, if unfettered capitalism was the the evil economic system in the late 1800s, corporatism is the unfettered evil economic system of the 21st century, right? Because for the most part, we Western countries, we found a way to put the bumpers up. We found a way to pad the corners for capitalism, anti-monopoly um, laws, antitrust laws, all of those things. Obviously, there's still s- stuff that needs to be worked out, but... We did. We're no longer exploiting children for 10 cents an hour, at least within the boundaries of the United States, right? We're, we're making those OSHA. <laughs> OSHA is a thing. Allegedly. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's about all. Like, I'm not, I don't pretend to be an economist. Um, but yeah. I, I, I do know that there's a whole slew of problems that comes in when we start talking about the corporate world right and and that could be anything from corporations being run like a totalitarian communist regime to the complete opposite end of that where corporations being in charge with public private partnerships and developing a new modern form of fascism right both of them are big no-nos um well that's why like i think the like winter in texas you spend as much as a month without power because there is no it's a private company who does your power and if something goes wrong there is no safety net and things have gone wrong two years in a row so you hear about like my power company isn't supplying my house anymore and that's just, well, too bad. <laughs> or my power bill is $1,500 this month. And, you know, it's what you voted for. It's what you got. Versus, you know, TVA. Well, that's that's an interesting thing because, especially when we're talking infrastructure and stuff like that, there's a couple people that I follow that that say that if we are going to if we are going to tax people and we're going to try and make things more equitable, one of the first places to start is infrastructure, right? You can't hoard 90% of a highway. You, you know, you can't, you can't, as the 1%, you can't dominate and have a monopoly over the entire New York City subway system, right? It just, it just doesn't work because it's physically laid down. It's, it's detached and permanently laid down, but we, we have to, keep in mind and consider the the implications of corporations as entities owning private property and establishing that infrastructure. So by this I mean um, 
if Google is the only company that has enough wiggle room in their budget to lay down fiber optic internet cables throughout the continental United States, are they under an obligation to share that infrastructure with other companies? And I think that's where we get into like the TVA and the energy um, companies in Texas. I know here in my region, you can go to Duke Power or you can go to Duke Power, right? They're the ones that have built the, the energy grid. And if you want to participate on the energy grid, you have to use theirs. Um, right. You know, so, so to, to, to what to degree... Me. I am the type of person who says that internet is a human right at this point. Like without it, you can't have a job. You can't get a job. And um, I also think like working and having money is a human right as well. So I am the type of person who would say like, if you're the government needs to supply internet to communities who don't have it because otherwise like, I don't know how you would file your taxes without internet. Like, I don't know how you participate in people do, but I mean, it's gotta be tough. It's the same way that like people do live without indoor plumbing. You could, but nobody wants to. And I don't think anybody should. And you could live without power. You'll be fine. You won't die if they, well, most people won't die. Some people would die. <laughs> um, I was just imagining like a kid with their nebulizer plugged in and the power gets cut and they have an asthma attack and die. Um, so some people need that power, but most people don't, you'd be fine. Um, and the internet is the same way. I think most people would be fine without it, but um, it is a need, which. Yeah. And I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm on the fence about that because once we start labeling things as human rights, um, then we open Pandora's box for how those rights are distributed, implemented, enforced, protected, etc. But let's table that for now and let's go back. Um, I say I'm on the fence because I had an epiphany similar to that earlier in the year. Um, in fact, I think it was, I think it was last year when we were prepping for our first remote, fully remote COVID year of teaching. Right. So not just the last quarter that we all got out and we weren't quite sure what to do. Now we're coming back and we think we know how we're going to try things. Um, and when you're having your students only come into class two days a week and then staying at home the other three days, it's very easy to make an argument that at least basic Internet is a human right. Because how else are they supposed to follow through with their end of the contractual agreement with the public school system and them at home? Um yeah, I guess if education is a human right, by default, internet has to be too this year. At least, specifically. at least for industrialized countries. Yeah. Right, because we we can we we don't want to <laughs> not to get too PC, but we don't want to keep a very um, Anglo-centric perspective on this. Um, but no, I, this is something I get my students to understand, especially when I taught the civics class to get them to to. How do we have these conversations of the lesser of two evils? If you have two bad choices, how do you decide between the two? Um, right. So what I got them to think about is because we have like FDR's four freedoms speech in World War II, right? People throughout the world should have the freedom from fear, freedom from hunger, freedom from want, blah, 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 blah. And that gets me thinking. And I ran into a lot of this type of thinking 
in my master's program at UNC Charlotte where a lot of people kind of defaulted to the it's a human right so it's protected and needs to be given to us. Especially when it comes to food. Um, I ask my students, right, do we have an inherent natural right to food? And at first they're all like, yeah, 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 of course. I, I need to eat it to live, blah, blah, blah. Well, then I present them with the scenario of like, does the lion get to picket the gazelle because the gazelle won't let himself get eaten? Right. And, and I know you can update that like, hey, it's 2022. We have like fully synthetic proteins that we can imbibe and to be healthy and blah, 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 whatever. Um, but the fact of the matter is even, even if it's vegan, life feeds on life, right? To, to, so to some degree, what we would what we would normally and reflexively characterize and put in the box of human rights is negotiable, is questionable. It's not set in stone. That's one of those, that's one of those things that we've been asking ourselves for 3,000 years, you know. How, why do the haves get to have and why do the have-nots have to deal without, I guess, is a more generally that question of what we've been asking. Yeah, it just sounds like that exact phrase, I'm sure, was said in France when they were having a revolution. Which, which like, is great. Word for word. Yeah, which is yeah. great because um, yeah, we're studying the French Revolution right now in my world history class. Because um, I'm in charge of the world history class and it. English class now. Um, oh, fun. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, I've been reading this book, which is about the Black Plague, uh, The Great Mortality by John Kelly. Mm -hmm. And it's so good because in this context it is really cool to be like damn i am of all the plagues COVID is the best plague to be in like <laughs> that's what, i don't think that's people what i realize try and, how good we have it that's what i try and get my students to understand is literally These every peasants melted oh, their insides melted out of their eyeballs yeah. out of their butt like it was nasty there was nothing you could do um, well, in in depending on the time, I'm certain it was at a time where they all thought that it was like because of ghosts. Yeah, you know, they th there's no germ theory or anything like that. Specifically, they thought that the smell um, of a dead body was what got you sick, which is an oak. That's a great line of logic. Um, yeah, because yeah, that one's okay. But it's kind of true. If you're close enough to smell it, you're probably close enough to mm -hmm. get bitten by the same fleas. That well, which them. is so which is works. why you smell it then, because there are those particles in the air that transmit through your olfactory system. Yeah, and evolutionarily, those smell bad to us because we need mm -hmm. to avoid them because that's where diseases are. Um, and then they also thought that by looking at someone who had the plague, you could also get the plague, which is also an okay line of logic because if you're close enough to look at them, you might be exposed to the same source that is going to kill them. So mo they weren't completely wrong. Um, they didn't like, I mean, they did kill a lot of Jews because they thought the Jews were doing it. Like, and, and this the most is deadly Holocaust was during the Black Plague, which I had no idea. This is something that I don't mention that to my students, although I probably should more often. Um, but one thing I do mention to my students all the time is that literally the farther back in time you go, the worse literally everything gets for literally everybody. Yeah. Right. Someone... I didn't realize like that the like he uses the word pogroms 
which is the word for when they killed every Jew in their city. But there was like 100% extermination rates in some of these, like in like Germany and France of the Jewish population. And obviously they came through the other side perfectly. You know, they came through the other side. I don't think you could do anything to the Jews that hasn't already been done. And, um, and, and that's something because historically, if you're curious as to why that happened, um, to my understanding, because, because Jewish people, especially in Europe, were already ostracized, they were in their mm-hmm. own little areas. Because they were already in their own yeah. little areas, they weren't contracting and spreading the plague because they were already kind of segregated. So because they were already ostracized and segregated and marginalized, they were safer from the plague compared to everybody else, which then got turned into an excuse to further ostracize and marginalize and exterminate them. Yeah, it was pretty severe. Um, and the main like takeaway that I had was we're always going to scapegoat. And like this time, at least early in the pandemic, I think it's changed. But at least in that first year of the pandemic, it was like Asian Americans here in America were getting like targeted and hate crimed for the plague that they had absolutely no control over. It's a virus. It does its own thing. Um, and I was like, man, like truly, 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 truly history repeats itself. Well, and, and I got to wrap this up because I have other obligations, but just to make sure yeah. we check all the politically incorrect boxes on, on this conversation for our first episode. Um, <laughs> the same thing can be said now of how everything's transferred instead of the um, scapegoating the Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders and stuff like that. It's vaxxed versus unvaxxed. Yeah. Right. Those, those are the new two scapegoating categories, right? There's the people, always going to be someone to point yeah, finger at. Yeah. And, and it goes both ways too, right? So the people that are in um, pushing for the vaccine are quasi-fascistic because they're using government mandates to try and force a multinational corporation's product onto somebody. And that corporation also has government promises that any fallouts or any bad things that might happen, they're protected from, right? That's like literally the foundation of fascism. But then on the other side too, you can point at the anti-faxers as like science deniers and yada, yada, yada. Obviously it gets tricky because you have to look at specific reasons. I know a lot of people that aren't anti-vaccine. They're just anti-being forced one or coerced one or experimental one. Right. And, and yeah, they feel, I hear that too. you know, and, and they feel that they should be able to manage their own risk the way that they should. And I think that's important. Um, but, but this, this goes I'm to fine with that. It bothers me that People tell me that I should care because I truly don't. I will never read the ingredients of the vaccine. I don't care. I never have. I don't read my shampoo ingredients. <laughs> I don't read my face wash ingredients. Why am I going to read? Like, to me, it's the same. Like, who cares? I truly don't care. I don't have the time. And everyone, it feels like you have to have an opinion on this. And I don't want to have one. My doctor said get it. So I got it. And I wish it could be that simple for everyone. Like. I've tr- stayed truly steadfast and never researching the vaccine and I never will because I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> like if it kills me, it kills me. My shampoo is more likely to kill me. Like there's way more chemicals in that. Right. Well, and, and, the, and that's fine. I think, and this is where like the more libertarian strains in me will come out. I think that people that people should be allowed to manage their own risk in ways that they individually feel are the best ways for their themselves. Right. Um, 
and I was going to say something else too. Oh, um, I've been doing a lot of thinking and reading and watching other podcasts about, and maybe this is something that maybe we can make this the topic of episode two, in-group preference as like a psychological function. Um, meaning that we are evolutionarily designed for primitive tribalism because that mm -hmm. was like the ideal unit size in hunter-gatherer ages and that's what succeeded for so long um if we take the evolution of mankind we have m the majority of our calendar of evolution is hunter-gatherer there's just this little bit of couple thousand years of agriculture tacked on at the end right so since we're evolutionarily primed for in-group preference and tribalism we're already evolutionarily primed for out-group exclusion and marginalization. So how do we remedy that? What are the boundaries? Where does in-group preference stop and bigotry and racism begin? Right, because I know a lot of people will cite the psychological studies of like infants responding to, right, white babies responding to their white mothers with more visual cues for affection than for black mothers. Meaning that this this baby is responding to their genetic mother more. And I think that is just vestiges of our in-group preference. Of course, the baby's going to be prone genetically to pay attention to and recognize um, what they are a progeny of because that's how they're going to be able to have the highest chance of survival, statistically speaking, right? Now, at yeah. what? I mean, at, they got to be cute. Yeah. Well, and, and at what point? If they does, weren't cute, we wouldn't have made it this far. At what point does surrounding yourself with the safe and familiar become toxic and destructive and turn into bigotry and racism? Oh, you, see. Yeah, you, you get what I'm saying? Because it, yeah. they, they kind of both operate on the, the core fundamental premises, or at least, or at least the core psychological symptoms, systems. And we need that. Because that's how we reduce anxiety in an ever-changing and literally limitless world of anything could happen to you any day. That that's what crippling anxiety comes from. And we, we pad ourselves from that with these in-group preferences and foundations of assumptions based on those in-group preferences to give us a boat that doesn't rock so much. You know, but then at what point yeah. does that become too static and concrete? And now we're doing psychological trauma to other people because they don't fit our in-group preferences. Man, if I like was going to make a treatment for everybody and everyone had to take it, my treatment would be training people to pick what they care about more carefully or a tool for them to pick. Do I want to care about this? Yes or no? Because I think, especially with social media, it's like, you care about this. Like this week, my entire Twitter was Joe Rogan. I was like, do I want to care yeah. about Joe Rogan? Uh-uh, I'm not going to. So I, I don't. Never clicked on an article, never finished reading one of the tweets. I'm not going to care about Joe Rogan. But I don't think everyone, like, that's what I would do. Do you want to care about this? If yes, fine. Go ahead and care about Joe Rogan. Okay. Uh, I choose not to. Let's, yeah. let's use that for our topic for next time in-group preferences and um, hierarchies of values and how we can construct them, how do they work, and uh, how we can be more careful in constructing them. All right. 